You're listening to the Tag Team Podcast, the podcast that is a WWE Network companion. Currently covering 1984 WWF Tuesday Night Titans. And now here are your Tag Team Podcast hosts, Jeff Jones and John Burke. Welcome everyone to episode 3 of the Tag Team Podcast, following all things currently right now with WWF Tuesday Night Titans. I'm John Burke. Welcome everybody. I'm Jeff Jones. And if you just join us for the first time, there's two other episodes, obviously. This is episode three. Go back and listen to the other ones. Tells you a little bit about the TNT Tuesday Night history, what all was going on with the history of Tuesday Night Titans, how it came about. And it also breaks down a couple of other territories. We try to do two territories per show. This one, we're actually doing three territories. So I'd like to recap the Tuesday Night Titans for the current one that we're watching, which is June 26, 1984. Such a terrible year 1984 but a very influential year in the history of professional wrestling yes and there was a travesty on actually the 26th of 1984 i was born oh that was a travesty 2 a.m i come out swinging you were just a little bit shy of tuesday night titans third episode debut yeah i didn't get to watch it had to stay overnight and not too many people had vhs recorders or beta for that matter so there was no replays look like i'm missing something in my life i think it was episode three and two and one but it is good to know that from this episode out you'll be able to give us a full what you thought of it when you saw it live in 1984 yeah you're wrestling <laughs> i saw this on 2017 wrestling television it's still out there they're doing an upcoming documentary on andre the giant hbo doc which are usually good documentaries because they don't have commercials for one they usually have pretty good production value and if necessary they can drop a word here or there which i don't see it happening but who knows what kind of stories they'll have on Andre. They're pretty legendary between the drinking and the eating and the women. There might be some reasons to put it on HBO. I am interested in hearing about the friendly giant, as they say. Yes. And since you brought up birthdays, me and Andre the Giant shared a birthday. Both born on May 19th. Well, golly. Yeah, that's my ties to Andre. Did you gain anything? Any genes passed down for having the birthday? No, unfortunately, I did not. I wouldn't mind being that tall, at least for a little while. I'd probably get annoying beds, planes, and all that crap. I definitely wouldn't want to have giantism and I think he died when he was in his late 40s. Kind of like to keep going on from there. I'm sure he lived more than we ever will. Oh yeah, the, day. the original documentary, The Larger Than Life, they talked about how he lived a lifetime, especially once he found out that he was going to be dying at an early age. He kind of even doubled his antics so that he could live it up while he still could. What a man. Mm. Eighth wonder of the world, folks. Love it. On the previous podcast, I had computer problems and my two SATA Raptors finally come in. I got them rated up this morning i am very happy everything is running smooth little problems reproduction but we got everything sorted out so far no worries we're good and i have no new tech this week it's all you we'll just have to fix that i think i probably will get something later on editing i found out that some of the strikes on the mic were kind of hot so i'll probably need a filter for that and ditto but as of right now i'm cool awesome well good in episode two we talked about big john stud freddie blassie paul orndorff zeke's gems and we learned a little bit about salvatore Balumbo and his magazine chip building. Those are pretty much the highlights, along with some territory talk from Toronto and New York. Ready for some territory talk, Jeff? Let's do it. Let's talk May 1984 timeline with territories. Territory. Wrestling territories. And for you youngsters out there, <laughs> wrestling territories is something that may be foreign to you, but at one time in the United States alone, there were 25 or 30 wrestling territories that were headquartered around the country. Territory talk. Indianapolis, 
Founded in 1964 by wrestlers turned promoters William Uffliss, Dick the Bruiser, and Wilbur Snyder, the brand name World Wrestling Association was borrowed from previous versions that ran in Chicago and Los Angeles, operating under such brands as Championship Wrestling and Bruiser's Bedlam. Championship Wrestling of Indiana Incorporated promoted shows throughout Indiana and parts of Illinois, and for a time ran opposite Ed the Sheik Farhad's Detroit office, which was a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. Dick the Bruiser's World Wrestling Association is soon to become extinct and likely just let the AWA will take the city over. The WWA tried to make a go of it in the mid-1980s, when Vince McMahon's World Wrestling Federation was buying regional promotions across the country, but the Bruiser's advancing age and the talent drain to the WWF was too much and the WWA ceased promoting matches in 1989. Indianapolis was a failing territory pretty much by the time Vince was going around buying stuff. It seems to be a, a theme for this week's territory talk. You got San Francisco? San Francisco. Founded in 1960 by a wrestler-turned-promoter, Roy Shire, the Pacific Coast Athletic Corporation operated out of San Francisco for more than 20 years, joining the NWA in 1968, operating under the brand name Big Time Wrestling. This group was headed by Shire and was the longtime home territory for such influential wrestling names as Ray Stevens, Pat Patterson, and was known throughout the world for the live shows held in the world-famous Cow Palace. In later years, Shire gave up running a full territory and booked his talent through other NWA-affiliated offices, including LaBelle Promotions out of Los Angeles, Don Owen Sports out of Portland, and Eddie Graham's Championship Wrestling from Florida. It was a big head-to-head battle between the AWA and WWF, and obviously Vince is winning. He literally stole the AWA's TV slot out. The AWA wasn't even told by the station till the day of the show, and Vern's big show at the Cow Palace in March was a complete debacle due to the scheduling and mishaps. No shows. Not good. The clip that we put on the website. The facebook.com forward slash the tag team podcast. That is the page that I was referring to. Greg Gagne talks a little bit about the AWA and how they were screwed Bret Hart style. It seemed like it was battleground territory. The events was going to be dominant, obviously, overall. That's pretty interesting stuff on that. Yeah, it's sort of like, I know we don't like to talk sports here, but it's sort of like the LA area. It didn't really have its own team, but it was a huge market and you just got to take advantage of what's there and try to get the name of your promotion out. So AWA, WWF, just turn the rights for a while and then Vince got money and Vince went. So the last one we got is Ohio and this will be short and sweet. It was also a, like a battleground type area where it was between Georgia Championship Wrestling, which was the Briscoes and then Vince bought it out in July and the WWF. Basically it was Vince versus own competition once July came around, but at this time it was still Georgia Championship Wrestling and Vince. Of course, as always, Vince is winning. Savage. Oh, yeah! But let's get into some Tuesday Night Titans, June 26, 1984. First up, Jimmy Snuka coming down, wearing his Hawaiian shirt. Classic shorts. Here's a tip to all you kids out there. Never wear a shirt that is longer than your shorts and is the same color. For most of the interview, I was wondering if he was even wearing pants. Even when he got up for a few seconds, I still didn't notice the shorts 
because they blended right in with the shirt. It was very scary. I concur. <laughs> I didn't want to look, but I kind of had to look. Like, is he just kicking it? How's, how's he doing that? Well, we did once again, just as the previous first guest for Tuesday Night Titans. He was really quiet. And I guess they had to crank up the game on the microphone to actually get his unintelligible answers from all of Vince's questions. Yes, the interview was very good and so good that I had to pull a sound clip from the first answer that he gave. Vince asked him how it felt to be out there and wrestling against opponents and things like that. And here's his great answer for that. Well, only one thing that I just like to just say to you, sir, and to the wonderful people there here in the United States, which I love so much, and I know that you're all willing to know individually and one of us, because individual's feelings is different. And if you got that feeling, then your answer is, ladies and gentlemen, only you know. Dead on. Answered everything that Vince asked. Everything. Yeah, I, re- I really couldn't agree more with his answer. Well, at least he knew he was in the United States, so that was half right. And that he was talking to other people that weren't there with him. So, two for two, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, it was sort of warrior-esque type of deal. It could be a number of things, really. I mean, we know that he died recently and that he did have dementia. And maybe around this time is when it first started to set in. I don't know. I've never seen too many Snuka interviews up to this point, so I'm not sure sure if he always had weird answers like Ultimate Warrior did on some of his promos that he cut, or if maybe he was selling the concussion that he got in our next segment, or if he really still had a concussion. It was kind of hard to say, but his answers didn't really match up with any of the questions. His next one that Vince asked was, explain how you feel when you cut loose. His one-word answer, the truth. That's how he feels when he cuts loose. So Vince kind of moved away from asking Superfly stuff for a bit and started asking Lord Alfred Hayes questions so that he could actually have some intelligent answers. And then he went into the famous clip turned around the world. Even if you're new to Tuesday Night Titans, if you followed WWE around any point, you probably have seen the clip. They've laid it on a number of best of type things on DVDs, on Piper's Pits, the modern versions of them. They played the clip before. It gets played a lot even to this day. It's the famous clip with Superfly Snooka and Piper's Pit. Here I was. I got to- Superfly was on the Piper's Pit prior to the one they're showing, and he didn't get a chance to speak. Apparently, he comes in on the second interview and hopes to get a chance to talk more. There's a setup to this. It's out there. This horse that I use was Casey Timeline, the history of the WWF. I love their videos. They have one usually for each year, and it's not just WWF. I'll have them for WCW and ECW. This, of course, was the history of the WWF in 1984. 
before, and it's with Piper himself. So he talks a little bit on this. The third part or so, the disc that's out there is $25. It's a three-disc DVD collector is $35, and the disc lasts about three and a half hours. So set yourself up some time or break them down into discs. They're really good, and it's fun to hear the wrestler's perspective of a whole year, what it was like being in the company for that year. From his perspective, he was saying that Chief J. Strombone suggested to hit Snuka with the coconut, and Rowdy thought it at first that it was a dumb idea, but he had 30 minutes before they were actually going out there to do anything, so he decided to run with it, and I believe you found some different information? Yes, I did, actually. Conflicting information. On the richest.com, I actually found a 15 things you didn't know about Mr. Rowdy Rowdy Piper, and part of it actually quotes that Snuka could have easily opted out for Piper to strike him with some sort of fake prop instead, but that would not look authentic. Snuka wanted a real deal. In fact, the whole coconut incident was actually Snuka's idea, and Snuka actually revealed that in his book. The him and Piper actually spent hours before the show trying to come up with ideas to actually grab the crowd, make them pop for that segment. And Piper kept asking Snuka if he's sure he wanted it, and which Snuka replied, Brother, you better hit me with that. So Piper hit him as hard as he could. Might not have been the smartest of ideas, but it did make worldwide news when that did happen. And I'm pretty sure that gave us the Jimmy Snuka that's telling the truth on his interviews to this day. And I actually have a quote from him. He says, when it happened and he hit me over the head with the coconut, thank God he had his bandana on. You know, that hard shell bandana he wears. He said it still cut him open and he was dizzy from the impact from the coconut that he just kept going one way. And when he ran into the wall, he just collapsed with the wall. It is the battle of the dead guys with their stories. They both do agree on the the head guard, though. That's what Piper saw. He saw the shell. He's like, oh, he's got a head guard. So he went ahead and hit him full force with that, thinking that would get some of the blow so it wouldn't be as traumatic as it was if he didn't have anything on. What we can agree on is that it was taped on March 28th, and they didn't really show it for the first time until June 9th. They waited a little while. No one really knows the exact reason. And Piper claims when he hit Jimmy, his eyes rolled into the back of his head, sort of like Undertaker-esque. And after the segment, Snuka was staring for about 30 minutes or so just off into space, which, I mean, he probably had a concussion, and that would be legit from that force of that blow. Also said that Snuka would shoot on Piper years afterwards. He kind of didn't like him anymore. I'm pretty sure he knew it messed him up. And the one thing I noticed is after that, Piper had beat him with the belt a couple times, and then Snuka finally got up and went into his Godzilla rage that Piper ran to the back and shut the door. The Snuka did everything but turn the knob on the door to actually open it. I did notice that. I think they're used to the beads in Fiji. They don't really have doors. Mm, No concept, I guess. So after that wonderful clip, they come back to TNT, and Snuka's on the couch, and he screams on Piper. That's what I took away from it. Yes. Snuka, as expected, gets extremely upset, and he storms off the set. Goes full Hulk. Still, he's wearing shorts. Yep. We finally discovered, oh, his shorts were the same color as his shirt, but not until about three seconds after he gets almost all the way up to the camera. Next up, they have the legendary great, the Stone Cold Stealing Luthes in his press, which he does not refer in any in this clip, but he does refer to history of his opponents, his little stench as a guest referee, and some matches that he had with Ed Strangler Lewis, and they show a clip from a Japanese match from 1957 commentary. It was all Japanese, so I could not rate the commentary bad or good, because I could not understand it. Zero zero no
one of the shortest matches that I had seen in a while from TNT. Yeah, they didn't even mention his opponent, so I don't know who he wrestled. It was kind of blurry. I'm guessing it was an American versus American, but it might have been Luthez versus Japanese guy. I couldn't tell. He then shows off some of his trophies he won when they come back from that clip. He shows off a Mexican heavyweight championship, and apparently back then they didn't have belts, or maybe they didn't actually give a guy a belt when he won it, because he just had like a plaque. And then he shows off another one that he got with Carl Gotch, another historical legend for wrestling. It was his tag team partner. They won those in Japan. He had a plaque for that. It was all in Japanese, so I couldn't understand what it was saying. But he said that's what it was, so I trust Luthez. Another thing that he showed off was an all-Asian tournament referee plaque that he got when he was a ref in the all-Asian matches. And then the most important thing that I learned about Luthez and his prized possession is that man can breed some Doberman pinchers, and his dogs are even champions. Indeed. He was also a medic in the army, so he could have inspired Hawk Ridge, for all we know. Mel Gibson might have learned it from Luthez. I don't know. So he was a pill roller, is that what you're telling me? That's what he said. I'm surprised they didn't beep it. Kayfabe, brother. Kayfabe. I wonder which part they would have beeped. Probably the roller. I'm a pill Yep. That's what I would have beeped. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> if you don't believe me, folks, listen to episode two. Next up, we get our Paul Orndorff fill of the week. Hello, Hello Mr. Wonderful. Has to be my favorite by far. He ends up going to a nail salon, or I'm guessing a nail salon. They looks like they did a little bit of everything there, but I think most beauty parlors don't do shoe shines. I don't know. Maybe they did in 84. It was an interesting time. Maybe for hair salons back in 84, they did a little bit more than they do currently. I think I like the set. It was one chair and a bunch of mirrors. I didn't really see a salon. I saw one chair in the corner with some mirrors and then the ladies. They do specialize in just one client at a time, it seems. I wonder if it's part of that special massages kind of deals. I don't think so. All the ladies looked American. Mm, Touche. But he did say that he spends more money in one week on his beauty features than most people would make in a year. He says beauty features. I say wellness policy. Whatever. Roads ain't cheap. Nope. Neither were them ladies at 50 cent an hour. Nope. Or his pony sneakers high dollar shoe back in 84 i loved how there was three original one for the hair one for the nails and then one to put cream on his face and then he stopped production and wondered where his shoe shine lady was so i guess karen was late to the party and he began reprimanding her pretty much the whole time for not knowing how to shine a shoe especially a sneaker it's an art form that is very lost in today's society they need to bring back shoe shine and sneakers i got some sneakers i concur look at this i look at that it's terrible That is the worst piece of work that I've ever seen in my life. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve this. Mr. Wonderful doesn't pay for this kind of stuff like this. What's the matter with this? You think it's funny or something? This is second rate. This is bush league. And I don't deserve it and I don't stand for it. Sort of like the gem type of vignette, except now it's in a nail salon is basically what we got out of it. And there were no fellas with shirts off, so it was a little bit more... Um, Tolerable, more watchable. There you go. Next up, we go to our gyps, as I like to call them. Joined in progress. We're back to that style, at least for this match. But I can see why they did it for this match. Did you happen to notice how long this match was, Jeff? Holy cow. Yeah. And that wasn't even them introducing each other either. Nope. No entrances. No nothing. We were still over 11 minutes. That was like full match for Raw. That would be like two matches nowadays. You know, five minutes into the clip 
quote, quote, I was waiting for the bell to ring for time up and we didn't get that. So I thought, well, I'll wait a little bit longer and it didn't happen and a little bit longer and it didn't happen. Uh, what is going on? But I guess that was for the tag team championships. I believe they were fighting for. I believe so also. They didn't really say since we didn't get the beginning, but seeing how long the match lasted, it had to be a main event and seeing what party won, it had to be probably for the championship. On this match, it's Mean Gene, Vince McMahon doing commentary, Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch, our tag team champions, versus our favorite enhancement talent, SD Jones, and probably not known to too many, Hall of Famer, Mel Mascar. Yeah, that's right. He was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2012. Oh. Yeah. They're going to they're gonna cut out SD, though. Yeah, if anyone's going to lose this match, it's probably going to not be Mel Mascar. And we do find that to be truth, as this was a decent match to watch, unlike some of the previous clips that they had played originally. It was actually good tag in, tag out. I did like that. It was actually tag team. There wasn't really much of a one-on-one, and then he go tag, then other guy tags, and then it's another one-on-one. I did like the tag in, tag out. Did you see the botch? I must not have the calls. I would have made note. They said that no tag was made, and then the ref, the camera's right there with the ref. The ref's looking at the hand, so I don't know if this was a spot they were supposed to do in the match or not, and the commentators just went on with their business saying it wasn't made, but there was no way if you were a referee that you would miss that. He could have just reached his hand the other way and slapped the ref in the face. That's how close he was. So I'm saying there was a tag, and they just called it that there wasn't because that was a spot in the match that there wasn't supposed to be a tag. I've noticed that with tag matches back then and even currently today, the referee gets confused awfully easy who's the legal man. Yeah, there was a shortage of good refs back then. There were no Charles Robinsons around there. Mm-mm. But ends with Dick Murdoch flying knee when the ref's back's turned because he's not a good ref. And Dick Murdoch was not the legal man. But since the ref didn't see that part, Adrian Donis scoots over and gets the pin. Good old SD to save the day. If he had just stayed on the apron. Yeah. I think the ref would have caught the flying knee and we'd had another 10 minute match. At least. Maybe they would have won. Who knows? And did you catch the ring announcer at the end? Yes, I did. It was the first, at least TNT, appearance of Howard the Fink Finkel. And he was skinny. The Fink. And he had hair. Yep. Not as much, but he still had more than he's ever had. A young Finkel. And I love how Vince McMahon, once they were going over the replay, teamwork is the key to success in a tag match. That's what they kept saying over and over and over. And Adonis, uh, Adonis and Murdoch had that, and I guess SD Jones just couldn't pull away. I think SD Jones has too many tag team partners, at least from all these clips that they show. He's got like a different one each time that he can't have a successful team. So do you think it's an SD problem, or do you think it's the other guy? I'm guessing SD thinks it's the other guy as many partners as he has. He goes through like one a week, but if it's always someone else's fault when it's just you, then yeah, you're going to always blame the other guy, but we know who the problem's with. So it was the other guy that was in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's got to be his fault. While we're on Mill Mascar, I had Bosley up some stuff on him, and here's what he found. Mill Mascaras, born Aaron Rodriguez Arellano, is a Mexican luchador. Mascaras is one of the original big three of the Lucha Libre E tradition in Mexico, the other two being El Santo and Blue Demon. He is considered one of the most influential wrestlers of all time for enhancing and popularizing the Lucha Libre E style around the world both in the ring and as the star of 20 films. He is also an accomplished artist and cultural ambassador from his native country and has appeared on three of its postage stamps. He is a member of one of Mexico's most prominent wrestling families, 
his brothers Jose and Pablo respectively wrestle as Dos Caras and Sucadelico. Jose's older son Alberto wrestles as Alberto El Patron, Jose's younger son Guillermo wrestles as El Hijo de Dos Caras, an identity that Alberto had once used, and Pablo's son Aaron is better known as Sicadelico Jr. Mascaras was inducted into the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2010, and the WWE Hall of Fame in 2012. His ring name is Spanish for Thousand Masks. So Mr. Thousand Mask has a tie to the present in Alberto El Patron, or Patron as Bosley likes to call him when he's been drinking. Yeah, I don't get on that job. Speaking of jobs, the next segment we have, I'm still looking for the application for this job. Well, apparently they are invisible because Lord Alfred doesn't know if it's a man or a woman, so either that or they're super quick. And this time Vince was not ready because you hear a... As soon as the back hits, I don't know if nobody told him when it was coming. He wasn't really smiling unlike his counterpart, Mr. Alfred, was smiling. That mailbag has got to be loaded because of all the questions they took this time. There's no way it would make it sound like that. I believe our first question was a writer wanting to know if there was any wrestling arenas to the Boston area because he was moving to Boston. Vince McMahon replied with, there's the Boston Garden. Yeah, apparently he doesn't follow any basketball or never heard of this Larry Bird fellow. That's been to multiple championships and played at the Garden. Hey, to each their own. Larry who? Exactly. And then the next question is, no more questions. It jumps straight to a surprise, I'm guessing, going by the fact that they did that whole spiel for a mailbag just to read one question, to show coverage from Vince's MSG award that was for his dad. And as we allured to in our first episode, he passed away before Tuesday Night Titans even aired its first episode. So Vince was there to accept the award on behalf of his father, Vincent J. McMahon. It was just him giving a speech on thanking them for the award and what the garden meant to his father. And the one takeaway that I have from his speech, the garden will always be the garden. That's about what I took away, too. That was his dad's favorite saying about Madison Square Garden. Next up, we have Magnificent Morocco, everyone's favorite beach bum. And apparently it was Hawaiian shirt day on this episode of TNT because he also was wearing a Hawaiian shirt and some Joe Cool sunglasses. He felt very comfortable when he went on set. He was, yeah, I got this. For this theme of this episode, I would say either Hawaiian shirt or Mellow. I concur. I'm going with Mellow. He goes to talk about his electricity that he feels when he's out there wrestling compared a little bit to surfing. They go to a match with Tony Garia versus Magnificent Morocco. On the call for this is Mean Gene and Gorilla Monsoon, and we get to see, at least the one that I noticed, the first wrestler with a tattoo. Welcome to 1984. Tony Carrera has a tattoo. There's somebody else that you're forgetting to mention. Mr. Fuji was the manager. Oh, I thought you meant tattoo. I'm like, who else has a tattoo? <laughs> Mr. Fuji has a tattoo. I did not see Mr. Fuji's tattoo. If you also on the episode two, whenever he's in the ring being a wrestler, I believe it's on his left shoulder. I hmm. wonder if him and Tony got matching tattoos. I believe it was in Japanese, so I didn't get to read what it said exactly. It definitely wasn't a heart mom. Probably meant sensational or watch American suffer. Yes, make me happy. <laughs> this is another episode with Fuji the manager, and once again, he's out there with Magnificent Morocco. It was a interesting match. We got a lot of false hope 
Tony Guerrero at one time was looking like this is his win. He's got this. And then all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, Magnificent Morocco pulls off a Bailey to Belly and gets the pin. Is that a Bailey to Belly? That was a Bailey to Belly. That's way better call than what I got when I was watching. I think Gorilla stole one and just said a maneuver. Only knew it was a Bailey to Belly. Deadly commentary. Mean Gene at it again. That's all I can say. Yep. He is one of the best ones out there. <laughs> they go back to Morocco on the set and this time it's all about comparing wrestling to surfing because we all know they're pretty much the same thing. Tons of wrestlers out there like to surf and tons of surfers out there wrestle. Unfortunately, I'm not well diverse in the ring as far as which wrestlers like to surf, nor am I diverse as to what professional surfers actually wrestle. I think it might be a sort of a ring of honor slash off-circuit wrestling. Or you could be referring to wrestling with the waves. Or it could be symbolism. There is the link Surfs Up Two, I think it's what it's called. The WWE it's marketing. Oh. With the penguins. Future fortune telling kind of deal from it. Maybe Vince took it to heart. Maybe that's where Vince got the idea. Exactly, that's what I'm thinking. Huh. So Morocco finally fades out and they promise us after the commercial break some bullish power. Mm. Only I knew that Putsky had a nickname when we would have used it in the last episode. But yeah, we get reintroduced to Ivan. Putski, the Polish power, and he gives us some Polish customs and a quick introduction about his workout, because we're going back to episode two where we talk about our workouts a lot, and then they go to a match. This was a good match. It was. It was indeed. I did like our favorite wrestler. Yes. Mr. Ron Shaw. And I'd like to throw in a conspiracy theory okay. that Salvatore, last week, wrestling Ron Shaw, was a loser shaves their beard match, and that's why Ron Shaw had no beard in this match. Ooh. I don't know what Salvatore would have had to shave if he lost because he did not have a beard at the time, but maybe he would have had to grow a beard and then shave it. Maybe he had to shave his boots. Maybe. So Ivan Putsky on this match looked different. The overall quality for this whole episode looked pretty poor compared to other episodes. I mean, it was watchable. It didn't have bad tracking or anything, but some of the outlines are kind of fuzzy a little bit. The color looked enhanced. So I'd hate to see the original copy before they did anything to it, before they put it on the network. Did you notice any of that? I did. Uh, Ivan was a horrible example because he, he's leather man anyway. Yeah. Going back to him when he first joins the set, I noticed so far he's the only one to get a warm welcome by the crowd, which I didn't realize there was a crowd there on the set of Tuesday Night Titans. But when he come in, everybody seemed to lose their mind when he first come in. And then when we transitioned into the match between Ivan and Ron Shaw, we see his popularity and then we put one and one together and he is obviously the favorite, the crowd favorite. Something else I noticed in this match, and I'm sure you probably did too, Vince got inspired by last week's match of Freddie Blassie commentary and I'd like to take back all the bad things I said about that guy, because Vince totally outdoes him in this match. And here's a clip to prove my point. In the wrestling department.
job. And yes, folks, that was almost full minute of no talking whatsoever in a 1984 modern match. I think that voodoo all in production, dead ear. I don't know what he was thinking. The only thing, I'll try to cut him some slack, and I'm gonna say, wrestling term, there's a plant out there. Vince knew about it, he was waiting for that chant to finally start, and come hell or high water, he was not saying a word until they got the bullish power chant going, and that took about a minute before the fans finally said anything. Oh, I thought you were referring to the wind that pressed by the microphone as it was silent to lead to believe that he was outside or he was adjusting the fan on his desk. I don't know. That was really crazy. It's like, really? Two weeks in a row we're going over 30 seconds with no one saying a word? You want to watch it? It's at 54.26 to 55.15 and it's just total pretty much silence until in the background you can hear a guy in the audience saying, Polish power! And someone else chants it and he says louder! And then you can finally hear it a little bit better and then talking again that was very interesting and not totally unusual for a modern match for just no commentary and if i was commentating for vince in the future i would pull up that match and say well listen to this if you think my commentary was bad he has been noted in the past to say that he had no interest in being an announcer or being a commentator that his dad put him in there literally second notice to fill in for somebody when he originally started yeah that clip proves it no interest so next up we go back to the studio and we got the Polish power and we're cooking and eating with some Polish custom foods. I believe this was inspired by the segment last week of Japanese customs. So we're going around the world with each episode and knowing my luck next week they'll have nothing to do with any kind of culture thing because so far that's been my theme with Tuesday Night Titans. If I say it's a theme next week they totally abandon it. Well I guess we'll have to wait to see if your theory pays on. But yes it was a very interesting cooking. I was actually inspired myself to go out and get a Polish kabasa, not the U.S. kabasa, which he stated, which is the ends of horses that are no longer used when they process the animal. The Poles use the good stuff. So I proceeded to go out to my local grocery store and pick up some kabasas, and I'm going to grill them tomorrow and see if I can get a little Polish power in me. He did say that's what he eats and trains off of, but I'm going to say that he's a liar like David Schultz. Are you calling me a liar? And that he shouldn't be saying that to people because he's going to make them not look anything like him. He may eat it every now and then, but that's a heart attack waiting to happen. Exactly. Which, with all the drugs, it may have counteracted the heart attack, so I think he may actually do that. That's a possibility. If you want to counteract a heart attack, disobey the wellness policy. I have had some of the stuff that he mentioned, though. I've had pierogies. They sell in most grocery stores around here in the freezer section. I didn't fry them. I just heated them up in the microwave. I think his were fried, or the ones that he mentioned. I forgot what... Polish name for rolled cabbage rolls are, but that's basically what he was eating, and what he described was a cabbage roll, and I've had those a couple of times. One of my local gourmet grocery stores carries cabbage rolls that they make daily, and they also have some at a grocery store here, but they're super expensive, and I've only had them once just to taste them and see if they were worth the price they were charging, and even though they put so many in there, they're not. Not good. Not worth them out. They break out into dancing after 
this. They show a little bit of dancing in the background while some of them are eating food. And then we come back after the polka fever plays us out to more dancing and music. And I see a theme coming here. In the last two episodes, we've had a lot of dancing with no talk of wrestling. Speaking of the dancing, I haven't seen Vince McMahon smile so much that when he grabbed that lady and started yanking her around like a rag doll. When they all of a sudden just went rogue and just started dancing. Yeah, Vince did look really happy for some reason. And I'm sure Linda McMahon was probably not as happy when she saw that clip. Ivan starts singing in this segment too. And he should have warned the symbol guy that he was going to start knocking it off. He gave it the solid 10 count. And on that 10th one, the symbol did fall off its stand. And then he just goes after double symbols after that, leaving the single one on the floor for Vince to pick up after he's done singing. And then that's when Vince starts dancing with the dancers and uh, just goes downhill from there. I was lost for words. He started singing, and the more you hear it, I think the more you just accept it. Eh, it's not that bad. When he started, I want to sing, and he grabbed the microphone. I really didn't know what to do. This could be bad, or this could be bad. I wasn't sure. I'm pretty sure we know who hired the band, because when he told them to play, they didn't play. When Vince told them to play, that's when they started to play. Mm-hmm. We don't take our orders from you, Ivan. We take the orders from the man that pays us. Even though you're going to beat up my drum set. Yeah, that poor guy. Of course, he kind of had it coming to him with the next segment, which is Jesse Ventura, late great governor, now current Mexico resident, I believe, hiding out in parts unknown in Mexico. He's on the set. He wants them to also play the polka music, but basically just to tell him that he hates the music. And then the aforementioned cymbal guy, the guy that's on the drums, jumps in, skips his line, and says, you want rock music instead? But he was coming in way too fast, because afterwards, Jesse makes him quit playing the polka music and then ask for rock music. So someone got a copy of the script and just jumped ahead. Granted, whenever they did start playing the rock music as requested, a little bit of Iron Butterfly, and Jesse had asked, what is that that you have in your hands, sir? It was an accordion, he said. What is that? It's a what? <laughs> what you do with it, eat it? Squeeze it. Muscle. What happened to you? <laughs> I wasn't squeezing it up. Burn accordion. The noise that was making your intro sound awesome. But he didn't know that, undoubtedly. Yeah. He also said that he was a bodyguard for the Rolling Stones. Which I looked up. Like he was telling the band that. And he's not lying. However, he was just a bodyguard for the Rolling Stones for an impressive, but not current, three years. It was 78 to 81. He was off by three years. He's no longer the bodyguard for the Rolling Stones at this time. But then it cuts to the Jesse Ventura versus our favorite, SD Jones Special Delivery. On call, we got Mean Gene and Lord Alfred Hayes. I did like when SD was in the ring first, of course, and then Jesse Ventura comes out, and as Jesse Ventura's coming out, you can see SD Jones smirking at his outfit, which was a little Jesse, I guess you could say. Wears different types of outfits than most wrestlers in that genre would. The very colorful individual for his hair was multicolored. And I did notice whenever he first got into the ring, he did a little layer strut, and as he entered the ropes, as he was walking back through the ring, and also, he was supporting the whole bowl cut except he had a little color at the end. That's a body original attitude you wanted to tell us later. Mean Gene noticed that someone had a sign in the audience that said chump instead of champ and he commented that there's little graffiti capacity crowd here because Mean Gene loves his graffiti. I concur. So Ventura ends up getting the win but after the match they do a rope crisscross and ST comes off with a fist and he's about ready to throw it and then Jesse jumps out and ducks back behind the ropes and leaves. A very smart decision. Yeah, you don't want to mess with SD's right hand. Mm. 
Definitely not. Jesse won with the flying elbow. Once again, the elbow is pretty popular. I don't know if he learned that from David Schultz or not. Of course, he didn't go off the top ropes. I believe it was Big John's Dutt. He did the flying elbow to Balamo after he tossed him out of the corner. Maybe it's a popular California move. Big John Stud healing from Los Angeles and Jesse healing from California also. Could be something. I'd look out for that. Probably came out of the same wrestling school. It's the only finisher they taught him. Flying elbow. Back on stage, keeping with another underlining theme, just go with it, is this theme. Vince tells Jesse that it looked like he had a handful of tights there. But our commentators did not see that, so Vince has better eyesight than the guys calling the match. Maybe a one-upmanship there. And I did go back, and indeed he did have tights. Lord Alfred Hayes and Mean Gene just failed to mention that. That's how he got the win. I think Mean Gene was occupied with the graffiti. He was very disoriented. Yeah, probably so. He gets mesmerized by graffiti signs. I mean, graffiti, graffiti. Jesse Ventura did have a comment, though, on it. And it's words to live by for all you kids out there. Because... You don't cheat if you don't get caught. That's your governor, folks. That's your governor. Coming away with his last closing remarks before he goes off the stage. He ends up taking one last jab at Vince. And I kind of like Jesse because, yeah, he would call Vince Jack instead of Vince McMahon. He'd call him Jack McMahon. Make fun of Putsky. I watched Ivan Paduski out here. That's Putsky. Whatever. I watched Ivan Paduski out here. I liked Ventura's persona. It was kind of funny on that. Didn't like what he was wearing, but he was still funny. That's why he made a great commentator, I think, later on in WWF Superstars. But his last jab at Vince before he went off the stage. If just one last quick thing, aren't you supposed to be sitting over here? And say, here's Johnny. Because his last name's McMahon, and this was supposed to be a Johnny Carson doc show type deal. So McMahon always says, here's Johnny. Of course, that's Ed, not Vince. Jack in his case. Yeah, Jack. <laughs> We're promised when they come back from commercial, Clip Mania running wild. This time, they even give it a theme, and it's tag teams. Clip Mania running wild. Contention for the title. So they come back from commercial, and we see some two familiar tag teams. We have this Moens versus Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch with Gene and Gorilla on call and going further into the match it was joined in progress looks like Captain Lou goes out there and I'm guessing by the commentary that it was a two out of three fall match and Adrian Adana and Dick Murdoch won the first fall and Captain Lou was all joining their side and wanting to become their manager and then the Samoans evened it up and then Captain Lou wanted to become their manager they had fun with that and showing shots of the crowd telling the Samoans not to take Captain Lou back and stuff like that and they end up actually just kind of fading out after that we do see that they take the fall so we actually get to watch a three count but the match still continued and no telling who actually won or if the titles were on the line. I did like how the crowd was behind the Samoans and during that match. I mean we know Adonis and Dick are the heels, heels anyway. Yep. I did like them getting behind the Samoans. They just knew what was going on with the crowd. Next up we had the tag team of Sergeant Slaughter and Cobra Corps first recruit Terry Daniels and I'm thinking this was before G.I. Joe because I don't think they would ever allow him to be in Cobra anything if he was still under license by Hasbro. But I could be wrong. Maybe it was intentional. I was really surprised to see Sergeant Slaughter in tag team action. Yeah, he didn't do it too often when I watched in the 90s. He had that whole team up with uh, Colonel... Was it Colonel Mustard? No. In the library? Close. It was Colonel Mustafa and General Adnan back in the 90s against Hulk Hogan and Ultimate 
warrior during the whole Iraqi war thing. He teamed up with him, and that was the only time I've seen him team up with anybody, and that was just for a few matches. What I noticed about Terry Daniels is his stylish Ronald McDonald boots. I like this, and I'm sure Ronald McDonald probably wants his boots back after each match. Very fashionable. There was no finish on this match. No, there wasn't. They did take on Lanny Kane and Dan Green. Yep, is what it sounded like they said. They didn't tell us at all. We just kind of had to go off the commentary as they tagged each other out, and then, oh, okay, so he tagged him, so mm-hmm. these are the other two wrestlers. Thanks for telling us, Vince, or commentators. But these are the trials and tributes that you go through when you get a jip, a joined-in-progress match. That was Mean Gene and Lord Offord did commentary on that one. I was able to catch that. Our two favorites from the match previous with SD Jones not acknowledging the tights were pulled by Ventura. Mm-hmm. Lord Alfred was right there. I don't understand. Another thing I noticed on Terry Daniels after I did some research with Bosley, he got his start through Adrian Adonis, ironically. Armarillo promotion, he was somehow selected in a shoot fight with Adrian, and he held his own. Adrian thought the kid deserved a chance, so he got trained and thrown into this pro wrestling scene. Unfortunately, Gene Oakland gives us a great line that he thinks that Terry Daniels may go on to make his mark on the WWF, and he did with his Ronald McDonald boots, because that's the only thing I'll ever know him for. Was he Doink the Clown? No, I don't think he was one of the 50 Doinks that were out mm. there, but he was not very memorable, and he didn't look anything like Slaughter as far as their attire was totally different, so I don't know. He looked like Slaughter was desperate for a tag team partner, so he just grabbed the person off the street. Want to make five bucks, kid? Possibility. The clean way. <laughs> Want to be on a three-second spot in Tuesday Night Titans on June 26th? Sure, sir. Next up, they had Moondogs versus Spiky Hubert. And for mentioned episode one, we know he's alive now, Brian Blair, making his mark on the WWF and tag action. It was Gene and Vince on the call, and the winner was... We don't know! There was no finish to this match. Not really sure where they were going with these little clips unless they were highlights for the next episode, which would be great, but sadly not. No, it was just to say, hey, we got tag teams out there, folks, and it's not always Adrian Adonis and the Wild Samoans like we like to show you every week, or SD Jones and the tag team partner of his choice. So send your videos so we can get more tag team people. Last up, they asked Lord Alfred Hayes who he thinks has a good shot at dethroning Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch, and he goes with the easy out of the Wild Samoans. And Vince is quick to inform us we have now gone weekly. There is no more two-week gaps in between episodes. They have arrived. Now they can officially call themselves Two-Week Titans. Two-Week Titans. Three Ts, baby. So comparing episode three to two, what did you notice? Besides the poor quality of the film. Yeah, the quality uh, differences, not too much. They still did their little clips. They still had Paul Orndorff on there again. <laughs> the first guest was quiet. On a repeat. The mailbag, of course. And they had a cooking show and culture. So I think they wrapped up episode one and two and three. Yes, this is true. A lot of callbacks from what they originally did in episode one and two, combining them. The thing I noticed is our first wrestling match didn't come till the 27-38 second mark. We're well into the show and there's been no in-the-ring action whatsoever. 
ever. It is Monday Night Raw before Monday Night Raw. And of course, we didn't have a mailbag, and we had the one question. Pretty much, it was kind of, eh. And if you'd like to watch, eh, it's out there on our webpage. Facebook.com forward slash the tag team podcast. And all of its glory, it's pretty much the same thing that is on the network. So if you don't have the network until they realize that it's out there and take it down, you can go out there and watch episode three of Tuesday Night Titans. Please watch. Please watch. Give us your thoughts. Give us a comment. Next week, we have a preview of Gorilla Monsoon. So an announcer at the time is coming on. That should be an interesting uh, little chat to see what they talk about with Gorilla Monsoon. Maybe ask about foreign objects that no one else could see in Piper's match. Last week, we got Captain Lou's coming on. And uh, they said Cindy Lopper. Thanks to Lou Albano. But we'll see. Maybe they should have said Cindy Thanks to Lou Albano. That way you don't know if it's Cindy. Cindy? Cindy Craig? You don't know. You have to stay tuned. Exactly. Sergeant Slaughter comes, and we get to see a little vignette of him visiting, I guess, for the first time. I don't know. The Statue of Liberty? On movies, maybe? Who knows? Jimmy Snuka? Iron Sheet? In Hey Brother. In action. Ooh. No clue if they're going to be gyps or if they're actually going to be full matches. Stay tuned for that. What do you want? You keep touching my leg. Now, with that, I'd like to say thank you for listening. Download podcasts, multiple devices. Download for your friends. Download for your family. Download for your friends of your family. And we'll see you next week. Follow us on social media. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the tag team podcast. On Twitter, at tag team. On Google plus tag team podcast. Or email us at the tag team podcast at gmail.com or on the tagline leave us a voicemail 6016544 tag that's 6016544824 thank you for listening to the tag team podcast join jeff and john next week as they continue to break down wwf tuesday night titans look at the look on morocco's face look of confidence Man, does he look good. Mm.